Hey Builders, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Voxter's People of Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Elliott. This week, we are chatting with Bern Hobart. Bern is probably the smartest person I've ever had a conversation with. He's also the writer of The Diff, which is an email newsletter about inflections in finance and technology. This conversation was super fun for me. We chatted about having kids, homeschooling, writing online, and tons more and it was incredibly enjoyable, and I hope that you will enjoy it as much as I did. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the podcast, Burn. Thank you for joining me. Great to be here. I really appreciate it. Before we get started, why don't you just tell everyone who you are and what you're currently working on? Yeah, happy to. So um, I'm Burn Hobart. I write a daily newsletter called The Diff. That's D-I-F-F dot substack dot com. Um, it's about inflections in finance and technology. So really about any trend line that's radically accelerating, radically decelerating. I talk about everything from uh, Zoom or the economics of Google to um, to the euro or uh, Mexican remittances or the economics of lying about GDP growth. Just anything, anything about how the world is changing, which typically involves some combination of new technology or geopolitics. It's really interesting. So I, I've been, been trying to dig into um, as much as, uh, of your work as I could in anticipation of this. And I was listening to your interview with Eric Tornberg, and I made the remark to my wife last night, like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be talking to the smartest person I've ever talked to in my entire life today. So very flattering, excited. And um, your writing is, it's incredibly in depth. It's incredibly, um, I don't know the right word. I don't, I don't want to put the wrong adjective on it because it's so interesting and unique. So how did you start writing? I've been writing for a really long time. Um, I guess basically since I went on the internet, I've been writing in one form or another. Um, I started various blogs in high school and uh, just wrote off and on when I had the time. And um, I really stepped it up uh, a couple years ago, I was between jobs and I just decided that writing more would be a useful way to to get my name out there and get in front of the right people. Totally. Yeah. So it's it's been accelerating from there. Um, more recently, I'd been writing on Medium for a while and um, that was doing well enough that I realized I could probably turn that into something more sustainable and then um, started using Substack initially mostly just to distribute my Medium pieces to to people who had read them and liked them and um, might not regularly check Medium, might not stumble on the latest, and then um, decided to test out having a paid Substack newsletter, and that actually went extremely well. So that's that's now the main thing that I focus on. I, I do some consulting, I do some investing, and I do some some writing for, for other venues like uh, Coindesk and Palladium and a few other places, but it's primarily Substack right now. Okay, cool. I came across your How I Got Hired at SAC Capital about a year ago, and I was just blown away. It was one of those, those articles that you read that just sticks with you. That story that you told and your, your story was so impactful to me. Would you mind giving our listeners kind of an, an overview of your journey from ASU, which I went to ASU, so I like that, from ASU to where you are now and how you, that, just a really, really interesting path and how you navigated that. Yeah, happy to. So um, we can go way back. So high school, um, I 
I got really into investing and really into reading market message boards and reading financials and trading stocks. And um, I was I was less into things like homework and studying. So um, I had just a really, really bad high school transcript, but pretty good standardized test scores. So basically, my options were um, there were some some pretty fancy schools that I could get into paying full freight or um, Arizona State really wanted to they had um they had a program where you could get in for free if you had really good um, SAT scores, regardless of GPA. And, um, you know, there's with a lot of schools, they they're trying to essentially game their U.S. news rankings. And so depending on whether the weighting is high school GPA or graduation rate or SAT or whatever, they can really fine tune it. So um, they ended up uh, making me a really nice offer. I went there. I was there for a year and I basically decided this is this is not a great way to spend my time and um, I should consider other options. And what I figured was if I take a break from school for a year, I can come back and I'll graduate in five years instead of four and 10 years from now, it won't make a big difference at all. Totally. Yeah. There's, there's no, there's a lot less risk than there would appear to be. So I decided to, um, to hang out in New York for a while, moved to New York and uh, decided I liked it. So didn't get around to going back to ASU. Um, I I did go to uh, to Brooklyn College for a couple semesters, sort of part time, but I was busy with work and I started to realize that I'm getting a degree so I can get a job, but I have a job and it's tough to do the job and get the degree at the same time. Exactly. So, yeah, the, the payoff was really not there. So um what I ended up doing in New York after a couple of false starts was working in online marketing. So um, we'd work with small businesses and nonprofits and some big companies and just help them get more traffic to their websites, get more conversions on their websites, et cetera. And what I started doing for fun was uh, once again, writing online. So what I realized was two things. One was that as Doing online marketing gives you a lot of access to tools and data that you use for competitive analysis. So if you have um, if you have a client, they want to sell business cards online, you can do some research and you could say, actually, you're really not going to be Vistaprint, so let's focus on other things. And um, so you get a lot of really rich data on who ranks for what and on how challenging it is to rank well and then on what games they're playing to, uh, to adjust their Google search rankings. So um, you get this really granular look at and how one subset of the market works. But at the same time, there was another totally unrelated trend, which is that the, the post.com bubble nuclear winter was finally ended. So there was this period in the 90s where hundreds and hundreds of companies that were internet focused went public. A very large number of them went bankrupt or pivoted back to brick and mortar or otherwise just didn't do super well. So a lot of people who had the job title internet research analyst, like uh, working at a, a bank or a hedge fund or something, they basically had four stocks to cover so they could look at Amazon and Google and eBay. And then so you had these these mega cap companies and then these tiny, nearly bankrupt walking dead companies. But finally, in um, in this period around 2009, 2010, 2011, more and more Internet only companies started going public. And I realized that the the job of internet analyst would become a real job again. So I started writing about these companies. You know, LinkedIn would LinkedIn filed their S one, went through the S one, wrote up here are the ten things I'd ask management if I was on the roadshow. Here's how I think the business model works. Here's what I think they're doing right. Here's what they're doing wrong. Here are their weaknesses, strengths, etc. Um, there was a really interesting company called Demand Media that went public around this time. Um, they owned eHow.com, and their business model was funny because it was extremely profitable 
It was really scalable. And it was entirely a creation of some weaknesses in Google's algorithm at the time. So what, what Google would do is they would rank sites well if those sites had really, really narrowly targeted content. So um, one of the examples would be something like the phrase, how to file late taxes in Maryland, how to file late taxes in Virginia, et cetera. So all these really, really narrow pages. Now, the process of filing late taxes is the same in all 50 states, but people in all those states will Google that exact term. So there'd be a page on eHow for each of these topics. And um, eHow had this really odd incentive where they'd create a page. If the page was really good, if it answered your question, then someone would read it and they would just go to irs.gov and file their taxes, or you know, they, they'd find some way to file their taxes, they'd be done. If the page had really low quality content though, the most interesting and useful content on the page would be the ads. So eHow was actually in the business of ranking well in Google with content that was so bad that they would get ad clicks for their Google funded ads. So it was like, it was profitable to Google, but really bad for the product. And for investors, the entire question was how long can this last before Google cracks down? And as, a, as an SEO person, um, so as a search engine marketing person, I actually had the data on how well these sites were doing and on exactly how they gamed Google. So um, Google started updating their algorithm. They punished the, the long tail content factory sites, but it turns out that eHow's content was not great, but all of their competitors had substantially worse content. So in the first round of punitive Google actions, eHow actually did better. And that was that was a really fun trend to be in front of in the middle of. And so from from working on that, I got in touch with some people at hedge funds and started talking to them. Um, I ended up also because I was writing about eHow and the economics of content farms. I ended up working at Yahoo for a while. Um, I I'd like to tell people that I worked under, um, I think, four different CEOs. It was nine months, but their um, Carol Bartz got fired the day that I joined and um they went through a couple other interim CEOs, but right after I joined Yahoo, um, a, a, a portfolio manager at SAC Capital uh, heard about me, got in touch, we started talking. So um, basically through that writing, I was able to demonstrate that I understood a lot of business models and through working in the search engine marketing space, I was able to learn about a lot of proprietary tools, a lot of different ways to track companies. And then... Having the um, having the Yahoo brand name on the resume also didn't hurt. So it was this really weird confluence of factors that allowed me to make this jump from online marketing, which I'd stumbled into, into finance, which I was very passionate about and remain passionate about. Interesting. So it seems like that writing that you did played a big role in you getting that position. So is writing something that you think everyone should do, or is that maybe just if that's something that you like, or is it is it a really good way to build kind of expertise and stuff like that? It's done really well for me. It's always it's always hard to give life advice based on what worked for you because like the people who are most successful in any domain are people who a had a talent and b worked really hard at it. So it's like if if my advice was like I guess if I listened to someone's advice and their advice was make lots of friends, go to lots of parties, be really gregarious, do lots of favors for lots of people, like. That would be good advice for that person, potentially. It would be terrible advice for me. I'm just really bad at that stuff. Um, so there, there are a lot of life paths that are just very dependent on, on what you have to be good at and what you, what you like enough that you'll keep doing it, even if the results are not great at first. Um, I do think, I, I do value a ton of the writing I find online. Like I find 
the most valuable blogs to read, the most valuable people to read are people who are working in a given field who will occasionally write up something that is really domain specific and just really born of insights from working on one thing really hard for a long time and finding finding all of the confusing parts, all of the paradoxes, all of the stuff that doesn't make sense for the outside, but actually it couldn't be any other way from the inside. So I find that stuff really valuable. That doesn't quite build a career, although there are there's this growing cohort of people who work in, in tech or finance and they'll have a site where every couple of months they'll drop the definitive take on something like the definitive take on, you know, why, why zoom is a fantastic product or why Figma is amazing or a really fantastic write up of what investors, how investors think about Facebook, why they're wrong, what's going to change their mind, et cetera. And those people have definitely benefited from their writing, but it's, it's tough to to bet your career on that, and it may not be a good use of your time if you're just doing it in these on this one-off basis. That you 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 actually to really get a lot of benefit out of writing, you do want to write regularly, consistently, and that's really hard. Um, it's it's really hard if you have a day job. Um, it's a lot easier for me now that it is my day job, but um, it was it was definitely challenging for a while. It it seems like, so from listening to your podcast with Venture Stories, I heard you talk a little bit about generalists versus specialists. And I'm thinking based, based on what you're saying that it, it makes a lot of sense to to write if you can can write frequently enough and you can write about something that you specialize in. So you, you really know what you're saying as opposed to being more of a generalist writer, like, oh, today I think this, tomorrow I think that. If you can have something more of an expertise about it. Would, is that accurate or fair? It is. What I've noticed is that sometimes someone will look like they're, they're a specialist in one thing and then they have these other really narrow interests that are not quite related, but it turns out that there's some common thread among all of them. Um, my favorite example of this is Isaac Newton because he obviously accomplished a whole lot in math and physics, but spent much of his time on alchemy and biblical prophecies and things like that. But if, if, so from today's perspective, it looks like he has these wildly different interests, that one of them is science and one of them is the opposite of science. But to him, his interest was applying his enormous Isaac Newton brain to the question of how does the universe work? How does the, all of this make sense? And he, he would view the natural world and the Bible as two different sources of ultimate truth. And so he, he didn't think of it as having a couple different unrelated hobbies. He thought of it as, I think, of as having just one big focus in his life that that looked somewhat unrelated from the service. And I think a lot of a lot of really successful people have that dynamic going on where they have different interests, but there happens to be some common thread that may not even be obvious to them, but that does hold. And you'll find what I found is that if you pursue all of those interests aggressively, you'll start to find these deep analogies between the two and, uh, or between the, the several interests. And um, that allows you to, to find these useful, interesting common threads. So um, in my case, I spent a lot of time thinking about technology and technology companies, but I also spent a lot of time thinking about um, financial markets and bubbles and how, how different derivatives get priced and how these, how these notional financial creations of things like, um, volatility or um, other esoteric derivatives, how, how these reflect the real world. But it turns out that a lot, of the, a lot of the math and a lot of the intuition, especially that you develop around these financial products, actually maps really well to 
to your tech. So for example, in finance, there's this concept of an out of the money option where if the stock's trading at 10, you have an option to buy it at 50. You don't really care if the stock goes from 10 to 11 or 10 to nine. That doesn't have any meaningful effect on the value of the option. What really matters is if something changes how fundamentally volatile that stock is. And you can think of a startup as a deep out-of-the-money option. You can also think of an intellectual obsession as a deep out-of-the-money option, where there is some small chance that it'll turn out really well. And because the odds of success are so low, you actually benefit more from higher volatility than from higher expected value. And you can actually take a you can take decisions that have a, a lower expected value but a much higher variance in returns and be happy with them. Wow. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm thinking a lot about about how you can build on those different interests and find those analogies. And I think that there's a lot that our readers or listeners can pull from that in really considering where they're spending their time and how they can can build on those interests. I want to kind of segue a little bit. I read I was reading your frequently asked questions page. One of the questions you put on there is should I have kids? And I found that that to be a really interesting question. Just last year my wife and I we had our first child um, a son, he's about nine and a half months old, and it's been just this crazy nine and a half months where we can't even remember what life was like before him. It's changed our worldview so much. And so I wanted to hear you talk about why you put that question on there and why you felt strongly enough to put it there. Yeah, happy to. So um, I'm pretty philosophically pro-natalist. Like I like, um, I, I was sort of ambivalent on the question of having kids and then decided that it would be a really good idea. And what I think is that a lot of people really undervalue kids because they, they overvalue a lot of the ways that they spend their time absent kids. Um, and there's also, I think, um, Brian Kaplan, he's an economist, who's written a lot of interesting books, and um, his book, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, was a big influence on me because one of the central claims he makes is that there is very little statistical evidence that um, that most of the decisions that parents make about their kids, like most of the most of the um, nurture decisions that parents make about their kids, have any real impact on how those kids will turn out as adults. So, um, you know, a lot of parents they they think the challenge with kids is you've got to give them piano practice and violin practice and soccer and tutoring and get them involved in all these activities, or they won't grow up to be well-rounded. But Turns out that's that's not really true. Like if you send them to soccer practice, they will go. They will play soccer. But um, if they like soccer, they will play it on their own. And if they don't like it, they will stop as soon as you stop taking them to soccer practice. So um, it it makes the decision a lot lower stakes. And it also means that when you have kids, as they grow up, you're actually getting to know another human being rather than just trying to sort of create this exact human that you that is everything you wish that you had been, but you weren't able to be or whatever. Like probably they're gonna have some of the same flaws that you have, probably they're gonna have some of the same strengths that you have. That's gonna make them really interesting. And it, it gives you a little bit of um, almost an us against the world thing where like um, my, my oldest daughter is super introverted, super into mechanical things and machines and vehicles. Um, when we take the kids places where there are a lot of other kids, she likes to be in the corner looking at a book or something. And that's very familiar. Um, so I, I feel like we're on the same side. And so it's, it's nice. And it's also nice. Um, it gives you the opportunity also to, um, to talk to someone who's going to make some of the mistakes that you have already made. And um, you, can, you can probably not fully prevent those, but you can at least give them a little bit of guidance. And maybe, maybe in the end, it helps you understand your parents a bit better. 
because you can remember your parents trying to get you not to do something. You can remember that you did it anyway. You can remember that you suffered for it and they were mad at you. Um, and then it's sort of the, the puzzle pieces all fit together once you've had exactly the same experience with your own kid. So, um, and kids are also just, they're fun to hang out with. I think of them as just little, they're little observational comedians because everything is new to them. So they're always asking, what's the deal with X? Um, they're, they're always making these random ridiculous guesses about what you're doing, what you're saying, how to pronounce particular words. Um, they're, they're asking all sorts of weird hypotheticals. So um, both my, my oldest daughter and the middle child have gotten obsessed with the question of what happens to various vehicles when they go underwater, like what happens to a car, what about a tricycle, all these weird hypotheticals. So like they're, they're keeping you on your toes. They are forcing you to be a good improv comedian, improv storyteller to keep them interested. It's just really fun. And, and because kids end up being very similar to their parents in terms of personality, um, it's, it's improv comedy from someone who really gets you. And you get to do improv comedy from someone who really gets you. So, um, or you get to do improv comedy for someone you really get. So it's, it's nice, it's unique. Um, I'm sure it's not for everyone, but I think on the margin, a lot of people who are weighing the costs and benefits and saying costs are a little bit too high, or maybe we'll do, maybe we'll have kids, but in a few years, probably easier to, to start yeah, I really relate to that a lot. And I think one of the things that struck me about having kids is the, the different perspective that I have now. So Hamilton just came out on Disney Plus, And the last time I listened to Hamilton, I thought, oh, man, like, it's really sad that their son died. And then I watched the watch it on Disney Plus, And I, I have a son now and I can think, oh, my goodness, like, how horrible of, a, of an experience that would be. And it, it just being able to kind of step behind them and, and put myself in their shoes is something that I don't think I, I could do the same way before. And so even now, even just like 10 months into being a dad, that perspective is so different. And, and like you said, I understand my parents so much more. And I also feel like I can have so much more empathy for people that have it very hard in life. And maybe they didn't have the best parents or they didn't have the best family situation. There's so much perspective that comes with that. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, I, I had a really similar experience to your Hamilton experience. In my case, it was uh, the Stephen King novel, It. So I read It when I was about 13, which is the, the age of the main characters in one of the narratives of the book. And to me as a 13-year-old, it was this awesome story about good versus evil and doing magic to defeat these powerful space demons and things. It was really violent and bloody and awesome, just super cool, super creepy. So I had a great time. And then I reread it when the movie came out. And it was actually terrifying. <laughs> Even though I'm, I'm much older now, and I, I know it's not real, but the book is actually all about evil happening, evil going after children, adults being willfully oblivious to it. And I was like, this is actually a really dark psychological horror book. It's not, it's not the, the fun adventure story with some gore and a few spooky things that I thought it was. It's actually something, something much darker. So yeah, it does, it does change your perspective on and I think another, another really nice thing about parenting is that it, it forces you to graduate to this, this kind of responsibility where you know that there's a set of problems that can't be deferred and that if you don't deal with them, they don't get dealt with. And this is, this is stuff like when it's two in the morning and your kid wakes up crying and ill, like someone has to deal with that problem and it's you. And you will also have to work the next morning. And it's really nobody's responsibility but yours how to, how to handle that. So um, it, it actually 
the first time that happened, I realized this is this is actual adulthood. Is that um, the buck has stopped with you, and that all of the consequences are entirely on you. Which is also really unfair. Like it'd be really nice if that didn't happen, uh, but it does, and um, it's it's good because we there's there's enough volatility in the world. There's enough variance in expectations that really bad stuff does happen and has to get dealt with by somebody. So it is nice as a parent to know that you are one of those people, that you're the reason, you're part of the reason that civilization doesn't just totally collapse because there's some big problem. It's unfair that it's anyone's problem, so nobody solves it. It is unfair, but it's still your problem, so you solve it. Yeah. No, I really appreciate that. I was listening to you talk about homeschooling, and I really related with a lot of the things that you are saying, and I'm hoping to homeschool up my kids. But one of the things that I was thinking about and what I was curious about is I felt like growing up, I went to school and I learned some things, but then once I hit, hit undergrad, I learned to start really diving deep into things on my own. Are there any principles or things that you think about homeschooling that apply to adults or apply to college students that you think maybe they should start thinking about as they're trying to teach themselves things and learn? Yeah, I... I think that um, the the approach we're trying to use with homeschooling is let them dive as deep as they want to on whatever topic. As long as they're not going to you know, lose a limb or commit a felony or something, um, it is okay for them to just get really, really into something, get really obsessed with it. And I think that's just a healthy way to learn. I think what it does is um, in, in math books, sometimes they will they'll use the term motivating example. So it's not just here's how this particular group works. It's like, here is a scenario you're trying to figure out how much fuel to put in this rocket to get to this velocity. And this is the math you would do, so, so now you understand what this is for. I think that there are a lot of those, those motivating examples in a lot of different domains, and that if you get interested in them, if you find some, some story in history, there are just a lot of different angles you can take. So um, I will periodically get really obsessed with some topic and try to read about it from multiple angles. So um, a year or two ago, I got really into the East Asian development story. Um, so East Asia, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, these were extremely poor parts of the world uh, post World War II, and now they're quite wealthy. And there are there's some commonalities between how those countries got rich. There are some differences. Um, there are there are some really really situational aspects to that story. So one of the things I learned was that containerization was a huge implicit subsidy for exporters. So when when ships switched from just packing everything one object at a time to packing things in giant shipping containers, it made shipping a whole lot cheaper. But one of the indirect subsidies to that was that when the U.S. was fighting the war in Vietnam we shipped a bunch of stuff to Vietnam and then the ships were empty and would have to come back to the US. So an empty ship, the market clearing price for filling an empty ship with stuff is really, really low. So that was basically a subsidy to, um, to Korea, Japan, and Hong Kong. And the, the story would have been different. It would have been the same direction, but different magnitude had that not happened. So it gave me an appreciation for just how how complicated and situational a lot of these a lot of these events were, um, how much how contingent it was on technology and politics, and just having some of the right people in charge at the right time. And then even within that context, um, Japan is very different from Korea in that Japan has this 
had, it's unclear if they still have, but had this super technocratic system, um, super hierarchical. The, the people in charge of Japan's industrial policy were not elected officials. They were just promoted as part of their internal bureaucracy, but they were selected in a very meritocratic way. Um, South Korea, around the same time, got taken over by a coup, but also implemented this very top-down, very technocratic system. So you have... Um, one country that industrialized by committee and then one country that industrialized by dictatorship, but they both industrialized. So at one level, it tells you politics doesn't matter. At another level, it tells you politics matters a whole lot, but the right political situation, like the right, the right political system for a given country at a given time is going to be very different. And um, certainly the right one is really, really dependent on how you evaluate certain trade-offs between things like civil liberties versus getting rich or getting rich now versus getting rich a generation later or something like that. So yeah, I, but I definitely think adults should, um, should find that kind of obsession and just really dig into it and write something interesting and definitive if they find something, um, find something interesting to, to say about it. And it's also, it's a good exercise because there's, we're always inundated with news and news stories try to tell a coherent story. But a lot of times, the story is just not, um, it's not this really straightforward narrative. Um, it's very rarely good versus evil. It's often like good but flawed versus good but flawed. And if you drop enough detail from any given story, you can come up with a really, really nice narrative where the good guys win or, or the bad guys win. But um, if you read enough history, especially history where everyone involved is dead now, there's usually less of an agenda, or at least the agenda is a lot more transparent. And if you read multiple books about the same period, maybe talking about different countries or talking about different groups of people within those countries, then you can get a really good sense for how easy it is to craft a story that omits the right details and, add, and emphasizes the wrong ones. And that just helps you become less confident in news so you waste less time having strong feelings about totally. the news. And that's, that's good. Yeah, oh, I really appreciate that. And I, I really appreciate you sharing your time with us. Um, I know I learned a lot and I can't wait for people to hear this interview and, and learn from you. And if people want to follow you on social media or support you in some way, how can they do that? So I'm on Twitter, fairly active on Twitter. Uh, Burn Hobart is the handle, B-Y-R-N-E-H-O-B-A-R-T. And um, my Substack is the best way to, to follow my writing, diff, D-I-F-F.substack.com. I do one free post a week and then uh, daily posts for paying subscribers. So uh, sign up and enjoy. Awesome. Listeners, go give him a follow and subscribe. I'd really recommend that. And thank you, Burn. Have a good one. You too. Thanks for listening, everyone. I really hope that you enjoyed that as much as I did. Go follow Burn on Twitter. He's at Burn Hobart. Then, more importantly, go subscribe to his newsletter, diffdiff.substack.com. Burn is an incredible writer. We're really lucky that he writes as much as he does and that we have an opportunity to learn from him. Now, before you leave the podcast app, subscribe, five star, you know the drill. Make sure that you don't miss any new episodes and help us grow the podcast. Look forward to seeing you again on here soon. Keep building. Keep building.